Today's topic is not an easy one. Uh, It is one that touches us all because we are all part of the culture of death that Jesus has saved us out of, and yet it is a culture, so we are yet part of it during this time between Christ's two comings. And this issue touches all of us, some of us, very directly. And so because of the sensitivity of what we're doing, especially because of the sensitivity of what we're doing, let's commit the uh, the next few minutes to the Lord once again. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his work that takes us from death to life when we trust in him. And we know that you have prepared this Sunday across this nation as different churches talk about life and thus the work of Jesus. Would you help us today? We commit these few minutes to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today I would like to tell the story of death and life. And I'd like to tell it in a familiar way. We're going to be looking, if you notice in your bulletin insert, uh, we're going to be looking at death and life through three uh, movements or frames, I call them. Death and life in creation. Death and life in crisis. And finally, death and life in Christ. And the question that we're asking today is, what does it mean to be for life? What does it mean to be for life? And my my prayer for each of us, and I I really actually mean this, I've, I've really been praying for us this week, and this has been my prayer, that our imaginations would be so captivated that we would know that Christ and his cause of life is so precious as to be worth going into action for, even suffering for. And as we do this, as we answer this question, we need to remember that our struggle is in the face of an enemy, isn't it, Chelsea? Turn with me, if you would, to Ezekiel 28. Without having any idea that Brian was going to sing that song, we're going to go right back to Ezekiel. This time we're going to be in chapter 28. It's a big book in the Old Testament. If you find Isaiah, then keep going right. You can find Jeremiah. Ezekiel will be to the right of that. Ezekiel 28. I'm going to be be throwing a lot of scripture at you. you won't be able to keep up with most of it, but we will read this first, this first section together. We're talking about creation, but we're talking about death that comes on the scene in creation in a way that we don't often think about, and yet it shows us the origin of the culture of death that is all around us. The immediate context of Ezekiel 28, and we'll start in just a minute in verse 12, down to about verse 19. The immediate context is about the king of Tyre, which was a pagan kingdom just to the north of Israel. 
But there is a a technique among the Hebrew prophets in in which you talk about somebody, but then you talk about the power that is behind that somebody. And, And so, though on the surface we're getting a description of the king of Tyre here, he's really talking about Satan. He's describing both but we're really looking at the origins of this being whom God created who became Satan. The face of the enemy. Follow along as I read Exodus, uh, Exodus, Ezekiel uh, 28. We'll start in verse 12. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, The garden of God, every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you by the multitude of your iniquities. In the unrighteousness of your trade, you profane your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth. In the sight of all who saw you, all who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more. Let's observe a few things about those verses. First of all, Satan is a created being. And my my understanding is that his creation falls within the pages of Scripture. And God said when he created everything, it's it's all very good. And that includes the being who become, who became Satan. And somewhere after the creation of man or the creation of his own creation, between the creation of the creation and the creation of man, Satan fell. Uh, he was beautiful. Verse 14, uh, anointed to a place of privilege, nobody was higher than was the being who became Satan. And a a special anointed cherub who was to give glory to God. But, verse 17, he became proud because of his own beauty and his own position. And he was cast from God's presence As a result, Isaiah 14 is another passage that talks about this with the same technique. He was cast from God's presence. Jesus says in Luke 10.18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. 
I believe Jesus was talking about his own pre-incarnate existence. Jesus was there. He, he saw this take place. 1 Timothy 3.6 is talking about the appointment of overseers, essentially pastors. In 1 Timothy it says, don't, don't appoint a new believer. Why? Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Satan was proud. He practiced what's called a, a trade. The word means to go here and there doing this and that. It, it involves this trade intimidation, the exercising of pure power apart from God's authority. First Peter 5, 8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. Revelation 12.12 says, Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. He's desperate in the exercising of his power because he doesn't have very much longer, and so he is particularly fierce. Now, Satan hates God, but there's somebody else he also hates. He hates the image bearers of God. He hates us. Death in creation. There's also life in creation, of course. Flip back in your Bibles to Genesis 2-7, where we find the creation of man. Look how Genesis 2 describes the creation of man. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. Now, what separates humanity from Satan here? We're both created beings. It's the breath of life. Isn't it? God created the man and then breathed into him. That's what separates us. We're special because God breathed his life into us in a way that he never did into the being who became Satan, though that being was beautiful. The man became the image bearer of God with the job of enjoying God and, among other things, growing the human family through a one-man, one-woman marriage relationship. That's our function. That's our, our task. And we see, can't you see, how this makes Satan jealous. Here God, after creating Satan, who was so beautiful and so privileged before God, then God goes and he creates this mud man, this man from the dust of the earth. And then Satan can hardly bear to watch this. He breathes his life into the man from dust and makes him the crowning point of all creation. And Satan is jealous of this. 
moving from creation to crisis, death comes on the human scene very quickly. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 6, we won't read all of this, but verses 1, 4, and 5 are very important. You, you know the story. God tells Adam and Eve, don't eat from, you can eat from any tree, including the tree of life. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then Satan comes on the scene and he says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Right? Teaching them to doubt God's command. Verse four, you shall not surely die teaching them to deny God's consequences. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. Like what he's doing, he's encouraging equality with God. It's the same thing that he wanted. And you know the story, they ate, they sinned, The relationship with God is now severed. Knowledge of God is corrupted. Character perverted. Righteousness gone. Now there will be a tendency to reproduce outside of the one man, one woman marriage relationship. Very important. The desire of the powerful to dominate those who are powerless will become the way that human society and human culture work. You see that right away in verse 16 in chapter 3 when God is announcing the curse to to Eve. He, he says, your desire shall be for your husband. In other words, you're going to have to hang with this guy. Practically, you, you've got to have this guy and he shall rule over you. His sinful tendency will be to dominate you. Not the way I made it, but it's the way it's going to be for a while. Webs of relationship become networks of domination, oppression, abuse, and hate. The currency of the death culture, in other words, the way you get things done, will involve power apart from God's authority. So we ask, where do life issues come on the scene. Why are we talking about this? Not long after Adam and Eve fell, idolatry came on the scene. Remember, it's about a search for power now, right? And and think about how idolatry works. The ancients were not stupid people, okay? They they would make these statues out of stone and gold and what, what have you. And they would bow down to them. They knew the statues were lifeless. What they were trying to access was the power behind the statue. Right? If I, if I need rain, then I go to my rain god and I I try to, I, I try to get that power that that rain god has and so I bow down to the image of the rain god. Fertility, same thing. Whatever I need, I try to find the god that'll give me that power. But important here in idolatry, you got to bring a sacrifice. You get the power in exchange for the sacrifice, and the better the sacrifice, the more the power. What could be better in terms of getting power than to bring a human sacrifice 
even your own child. And we see this in the Old Testament, uh, especially in the, 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 the god Moloch that Israel would not even pronounce this abominable god's name. He was an Ammonite god, the, 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 the Phoenician representation of, uh, of uh, Moloch was Baal. And as God is bringing the people into the land, he tells them through Moses, you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. This detestable practice, though, was ubiquitous throughout the ancient world. It means it was everywhere. In 1921, there was a discovery in North Africa on the site of the ancient city of Carthage. Uh, they, they unearthed uh, hundreds and hundreds of urns from about the 8th century B.C., so during the time of the kings in Israel. And these hundreds and hundreds of urns were filled with the remains of babies that had been offered to the gods. And on top of some of the urns, there were descriptions of who had brought their offering and to which God it had been offered. One of them said, uh, Tuscus gave Baal, his mute son Bad-Ostart, a defective child in exchange for a healthy one. See how it's working? I got a child that I don't really want. I want a better one. I bring that child and maybe the God will give me a better one. Look at that search for power. Uh, a historian at the time wrote about the Carthaginians after they had suffered a big defeat in battle. This is what he wrote. Therefore, the Carthaginians, believing that the misfortune had come to them from the gods, betook themselves to every manner of supplication of the divine power. In their zeal to make amends for their omission, they selected 200 of the noblest children and sacrificed them publicly. Right? The better the sacrifice, the more the power. The Greeks and Romans, moving along a little bit in history, were a lot more sophisticated. They, uh, practice in, they practiced infanticide, uh, which simply involved putting the child out in the open, maybe in a field, leaving the child somewhere. Uh, they were particularly hard on baby girls, because the more sons you had in your family, the more the power, right? There was a discovery in ancient Delphi in Greece. Um, pretty interesting. The, the roster of 600 uh, noble families was discovered. Interesting thing about this roster, of the 600 families, only six had raised more than one girl. Right? Where are all the girls going? They're being put out to die. In, in Roman times, around the time of Jesus, there, is a, uh, there was a, a man named Hilarion. We don't know anything else about him, but he wrote a letter to his wife when he was on a business trip. I ask and beg you to take good care of our baby son, and as soon as I receive payment, I shall send it to you. If you are delivered of a child before I come home, if it is a boy, keep it. If it is a girl, discard it. Don't forget me. How can I forget you? I beg you not to worry. Look how casual he is about this. Right? It was a common practice. 
And so we're looking at history. We're seeing how that quest for power worked its way through history. And we have to ask ourselves, are we any better? We know we're more sophisticated, I think. But are we any better? And I think the best that we can say is that today our gods are only different. Uh, We worship, don't we, upward mobility, career advancement, affluence, leisure, education, a good thing, but we can worship it, or the good life, whatever that is. Chelsea mentioned Planned Parenthood, we scarcely have to do that after the videos that were released this summer. But they showed us how powerful that industry is and how much power there is over the powerless. Uh, One thing I found to be interesting this summer um, You know, I'm listening to the outrage over the Planned Parenthood videos. It's interesting to me. We weren't outraged, for the most part, that abortion was taking place. We knew that. We weren't even outraged that uh, fetal body parts were being used for other purposes, being recycled, because we, we knew that. What people were angry about, even people who weren't otherwise for life, was that people were profiting. They they were using the industry to gain power. But as Chelsea mentioned, most people who are trapped in the culture of death are, are not powerful at all. They're seeking to survive, and they think that this is the only way that they can survive. There was a new website that uh, was started this summer called Hashtag Shout Your Abortion. And it is a, uh, a website that allows women uh, who have had abortions uh, to speak out so that they will not feel shame. And I I, I logged on once, so you don't have to. And and I I found there a long litany of women who, and this was the common theme, I felt I had no other chance. I I was powerless. And I had to do something. Uh, The two women who started the website, one of them wrote, My abortion was in 2010, and the career I've built since then fulfills me. It's the only thing I could do in order to have this career. The other woman wrote, I own my own body and I decide what grows in it. Do you hear that the seeking after power there is a kind of desperation? And we should not be outraged with this. Our, Our hearts should go out to these women. Crisis, death. Do you know there's also life in the crisis? We see it. Come back to the Garden of Eden with me. Genesis 3, the very end, verse 22. Look at how God handles this. 
Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. In other words, God was not going to let them stay there and eat of the tree of life in a very literal way and live forever in the state in which they were. It's going to take a while, but he's going to bring us out of death. And so as a kind of severe mercy, Adam and Eve were expelled from the beautiful garden. And they would wait for Christ. And here's the good news. We move from crisis to Christ. Right? There, there, there is good news in the story uh, because of Jesus. When Jesus comes on the scene, and he's always been on the scene, okay? He was there from the beginning, everything made by him, for him, through him. But when he comes on the scene, becoming what? Powerless in the form of a little baby. Uh, this is what John says, John 1.4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus himself, John 5, says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. John writing later in his epistle, 1 John 5, 12, Whoever whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Jesus comes, he is life, and he brings life. But you know, even in the coming of Christ, there is death. Only it's glorious. Especially in the coming of Christ, there is death. The coming of Christ involves death in at least four ways. Let's slow down and think about this. Four people or things die in the work of Jesus. Uh, number one, Jesus died. First Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus came and, and he, he took everything that we We're experiencing in the crisis. He took our sins on himself. That sin went on him and he died on the cross. And and, and then he was buried. And then to show that he accepted the work of Jesus, God the Father raised him to newness of life. Jesus' death in experiencing the wrath of God for us is the centerpiece uh, of our faith. Jesus died. Second person who died, though, and here the theology gets really deep, and you got to think about this. I died with Christ. All right? when, when I trust in Jesus, everything that Jesus did to take God's wrath in my place uh, becomes... Applied to my life. Uh, Look at Galatians 2.20. This is my life verse. I love it. I have been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Don't you see it? Jesus went from death to life. And when I trust him by faith, I go from death to life. And in a very real way, my sin was there on the cross with Jesus. Third thing that has to die, or that does die, when I trust Christ. My desire to find power apart from Christ begins to die. Before I thought that was the only way it worked. You had to find power. And now I find out that there is power, but it isn't my power. It is the power of God. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I'll read it slowly. Look at the sacrifice language here in these verses. Thinking about everything we talked about with sacrifice. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Instead of bringing a dead sacrifice to God, I now bring myself to him. And I receive his power for service and for suffering. And look what happens here with my mind. I no longer have to be conformed to the culture of death. I no longer have to dominate other people to do what I need to do in this life like I thought I did. Instead, I am raised to newness of life, and I have a new way of thinking. That desire to find power begins to die. But there's a fourth thing that dies, and it's very important for what we're talking about today. My shame dies. My shame dies. When I come to Christ. Now, shame is the subjective response to guilt. All right? When we sin, we are guilty. That, that is our status. My shame is what I feel as a result of that guilt. A really funny thing happens in the Christian life, though. Before I know Christ, I sin, right? And for the most part, I don't recognize that as sin. I don't, I don't really know what sin is. After I trust Christ, though, I become holy. And I begin to grow in holiness. And what, what happens is that suddenly stuff that I thought, or that I didn't think was sinful, suddenly takes on a new meaning. And I begin to think back over my life and I think, oh, why did I treat that girl that way? In college, or that guy that way, or why was I such a mouthy teenager? I'm embarrassed now, 40 years later, at the way I treated that teacher. It's possible in the Christian life for holiness and shame to grow together side by side. For those who have had an abortion, or in the case of men, and we don't talk about 
men very much, but for those who have been party to an abortion, shame can be debilitating, even incapacitating in the Christian life. You know, the devil hates life. And up until the moment that a woman has an abortion, he's all against life. But the minute she walks out of the clinic, he becomes pro-life. He wants to take that sin, and for the rest of his life, he wants to rub it in her face. So she will be incapacitated in serving God, especially if she trusts Christ along the way. What we have to do in thinking about shame is that we have to separate the guilt from the shame. We recognize that we are guilty before God. Every one of us is. But, but it's what we just talked about. When Jesus died, and when we trust him by faith, and when we confess our sins to him, his death covers over that guilt. It's not as though it didn't happen. It did happen, but his, his righteousness covers over our guilt, and our relationship to God is restored. Where then does that shame come from? It comes from the evil one. It doesn't come from God. And the business of having shame die in our lives and seeing that take place is to recognize that shame is not from God. I need to commit it to him. And then I need to stand up and I need to live in newness of life. And this is also what the work of Jesus is about. Hebrews 10.22 talks about this exactly. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. There's the shame. And our bodies washed with Pure water. That's what Jesus does. Or, or look at 1 John 3, 20 and 21. Same thing. For whenever our heart condemns us, that's the shame. God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And with confidence before God, then we're able to move out and serve him. What do we do then? That's our question. How, how, do, how do we serve him? What does it look like when shame dies in our lives? Well, we go back into the crisis We've, we've, we found life in Christ, and we go back into the crisis for those who were in it, filled with the Spirit of God and armed with the gospel of life and with prayer. And, and like Chelsea and the others at Bridgehaven do, we identify with the suffering of the powerless. Uh, the unborn, yes, but not just the unborn. They're, they're, they're mothers, right? Their fathers, their families, their their social networks, and and we don't just serve them; we suffer with them in the face of an enemy, maybe at great personal cost to ourselves. 
I read 1 Peter 5.8 earlier. Let me read it again with the two verses after it. Look at the connection here in these verses between the devil and the role of suffering in our lives in serving others. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So what does it mean to be for life? It's on your bulletin insert. There's, this, is, this is our suggestion for what it means to be for life in light of everything we've looked at. Being for life means serving Christ and suffering for those in crisis in this world while in the face of an enemy. I'd like to challenge you to do something this week. And for those of us in community groups, uh, this is going to be the topic of discussion tonight. For those of you not in community groups, you're welcome to come into the building at 6 o'clock and find a group. Talk to Pastor Chris. He'll hook you up. Uh, questions are also on a table in the back. But I'd like, you to, I'd like to challenge you to do something this week. In identifying with the suffering of the powerless... I'd like to encourage you to fast for one meal. One meal. You'll probably not miss it unless it becomes a really, unless God really uses this time in your life, and then you'll remember this one meal that you didn't have. And identifying with the suffering, fast for one meal. That means don't eat. Okay, Whatever time that you spend, breakfast, lunch, dinner, that hour, that half an hour, just take that time to do something else. And here's what I want you to do. Ask yourself, where are the powerless in my web of relationships? Who, who, who are these people? And, and feel free to broaden out the question here. You know, being pro-life is being whole life. Right? We're talking about the unborn and their families today, but there are other sets of people in society that are powerless, uh, the unborn, their mothers, uh, the mentally handicapped, the elderly, the refugee, uh, otherwise healthy children in our own Sunday school who are powerless simply because they are children. Where are these people in your web of relationships? And then I'd like to ask you to think about this question, what would it look like to serve one of these and to suffer with them in the power of the Spirit and in the face of an enemy? Think about that this week. Let's pray together and commit our church family to the Lord as we do this. Father, we thank you for life. 
thank you for Jesus who brings us from death to life. And Father, we are all guilty before you. And yet in Jesus, we, those of us who have trusted in you, accept your forgiveness that is full and rich and free. And it leads to a life of power in the spirit that is so contrary to what your enemy would do apart from you. And we pray for those in our church family and those in our community who are tangled up in life issues. In their past, there is perhaps an abortion or they've caused a situation that led to an abortion. Oh, Lord, there is good news here. By your grace, uh, would we all receive uh, your forgiveness? And as we wrestle with shame, every one of us, would you help us to remember that you've covered our guilt The shame is not from you. It can be put away, and we can live and serve and even suffer by your grace with those who need to hear the gospel. We pray it all in Jesus' name.